Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Hi, I'm Lydia Brown here with Carmen Baskoff, and we're the producers of Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. We're so glad to have you listening to this podcast, and we hope that you will support the work that we do on this program by giving us a call today. The number is 1-800-584-2788, or you can go online to wnpr.org. This podcast may be an important part of your routine, um, so think about the times uh whether you're on your commute or uh, on a run, all the times you listen to Where We Live and, and what that means to you. And if that's something you value, give us a call, 1-800-584-2788, or go online to wnpr.org donate. And thanks. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. This year, more than 26,000 runners finished the Boston Marathon. Did you run in that race, or do you aspire to one day? Coming up, we'll talk to a local resident who has some tips on ways to start running. Jason Marshall is president of Glastonbury River Runners in Glastonbury, Connecticut. He'll join us in a few minutes. We'll also hear from an Enfield resident who started running in his mid-60s, and he's now completed the Hartford Marathon not once, but seven times. I really enjoyed talking with Kieran Mujmadar, his interview later. You can join us, too. The number 860-275-7266. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. But first, how fast can humans run? My next guest researches the mechanics of running. Joining us by phone, Dr. Peter Wayan, professor of applied physiology and biomechanics at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. Uh, Peter, welcome to our show. Oh, thank you for having me, Lucy. Uh, when we were looking uh, into uh, your research uh, showing that uh, when we're all moving at our top speed, uh, the amount of time it takes for uh, each of us to reposition our limbs or the swing time is actually the same uh, for all runners, about 0.3 seconds. How is that possible? Well, the timing, humans like to run a particular way. So when you put the, the, the physical requirements uh, or mechanical requirements of running to, together with how our bodies work. There are just certain solutions that, that people choose consistently. And so all of our research has shown that the time in the air between steps, as well as the time that it takes to position one limb for, for a subsequent step, um, the swing time that you just referred to, um, those t- times don't vary. They vary little or not at all between runners of, of different ability. So in, in a sprinting context, Usain Bolt takes the same amount of time to pick up his foot and put it back down for the next step as a slow poke or an intermediate runner does. Uh, that's, to some of us, that's pretty unbelievable to, to think about. So tell us about the, the physical makeup of a runner. You mentioned Usain Bolt. Uh, some see him as the fastest man uh, in the world. Uh, is there anything about the way his body type uh, is that helps him uh, run as fast as he can? Once runners get up to speed, it, you know, it's helpful to, to have long limbs and cover a lot of ground between strides. So obviously that's an advantage for him. The, the less appreciated aspect of, of his performances is that if you're very tall and, and you have more body mass, it's harder to accelerate. And it's just basic physics. You know, the, the force you put into the ground in relation to your body mass is what determines how quickly you can speed up. Uh, and in a slightly different way, also how fast you can run at top speed. But um, larger 
individuals have greater time accelerating because they have so much more mass. So one of the most remarkable things about Usain Bolt is that he's very good at accelerating despite being really tall. Uh, when we think about also uh, muscles and how they work, are the muscles in uh, Usain Bolt's legs, uh, how are they working differently, or, or what about their makeup is different than, say, someone who doesn't run at all? Yeah, that's a, a really good question. So there are some things that, that, that are adaptable biologically and some things that are not. So the amount of force that a muscle will produce uh, is a function of its area, and that, that's invariant biologically speaking. So you know, different muscles in our body, our muscles versus a, a cow or a rat or, uh, or a turkey, the, uh, the force that muscles generate because they're all made of the same components that, and they generate force in the same way, that's a variable that really cannot be altered. So there's nothing special about Usain Bolt's muscles or the muscles of, a, of another person who's, who's very fast. Um, what they do that differentiates them is really motion-based. It, it's how they, they position their limbs and particularly how they strike the ground in the initial part of the contact phase for a running step. Uh, in uh, different talks that you've done, you've explained this as almost punching the ground with their feet. Can you describe that a little bit more for us? Yes, and, and that in essence is what separates the top-level competitive sprinters from people that are reasonably fast and not fast at all. So. The, um, the force on the ground is the critical thing that determines how fast a runner can go. And probably your listeners have seen enough running images that they, they'll recognize a sprinter's gait just by watching a video, whether they know the sprinter's running fast or not. And one of the characteristic features of that gait is that sprinters run with a very high knee lift. And what they do by positioning their, their knees high on the front side of their body before the limb comes down to impact the ground is they're creating a lot of space between their foot and the ground. And what they, they do that intentionally so that they have more space to accelerate their limb to a high velocity before it impacts the ground, and they stop it very quickly by stiffening up their calf muscles and their Achilles tendon. So we use the analogy that, that you just referred to of throwing a punch at the ground with their lower limb. So they wind up, they, throw the, they push their limb down as, at the highest velocity they can, and then they stop it very quickly by controlling their ankle mechanics on the ground. And in a nutshell, that's what separates the fast people from the people who are, who are not as fast, how well they do that. On the phone with me, uh, Peter Wayan, professor of applied physiology and biomechanics at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas, as we learn uh, more about the science and mechanics behind high-speed running. Um, you can join our conversation this hour, too, the number 860-275-7266. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. Uh, so uh, when we think about uh, your research and how uh, you've been able uh, to learn about uh, these uh, these things, Peter, uh, tell us uh, how you went about doing that. You you and Onion, your peers? So, the, well, we kind of uh, stumbled into it, honestly. There, you know, it's, uh, it's been a set of scientific issues that are fascinating to a lot of us. But um, we initially started doing the sprint mechanics work uh, after um, in a comparative biology lab at, at Harvard University at the Concord Field Station. And what happened uh, that led us into human sprinting mechanics was we had a treadmill speed limitation. We had, uh, at the Concord Field Station, we studied all sorts of animals, you know, kangaroos, wallabies, uh, emus, uh, antelope, uh, and even in the early days of the lab, cheetahs and wolves. But um, we started studying pronghorn antelope, and we got them when they were very young and trained them to run on the treadmill, but when they became adolescents, they could outrun the speed of our treadmill. 
So we ended up putting new gearing on the treadmill so that we could actually max the antelope out, at least aerobically. And that required treadmill speeds of about 35 miles per hour. But once we had geared up the treadmill, we realized that a lot of the scientific platforms we had in place to explain a variety of things, predominantly how the gait mechanics of the different animals determine how much energy they use when they run, we realized we could, we could use performance, sprinting performance, uh, in and of itself because we wanted to know, but also as a way to test our scientific understanding. So once we had cured up the treadmill uh, to go fast enough to test the antelope the way that we wanted to, we realized, oh, we have a, a real big scientific opportunity here to use performance as an outcome variable to push our understanding forward. And that's how it started. Mm-hmm. And the very first study that we did, um, we looked at fast, medium, and slow people and got the outcome that you referred to at the beginning of the show, which was there was no, no difference uh, between fast, slow people in terms of how quickly or the time that they take to reposition their limbs. Mm. That identified the force on the ground in relation to, to body mass as the critical variable. So, Peter, how fast did the treadmill have to go uh, to uh, make an antelope get tired? We geared it up to go a little bit over 40 miles per hour, and the pronghorn antelope are nature's best endurance runners. So they they live in the western North American plains, and they can sustain speeds of 30 to 40 miles per hour at altitude for 10 to 20 minutes. So we had to uh, we had to go to about 35 miles per hour, not to get to their maximum sprint speed, just to get to their maximum aerobic speed. So you started with animals, uh, and then later on, uh, you know, finding out that uh, most of us, again, at our top speed have that same swing time. So who were the people that you had running in your lab on this treadmill, uh, the age ranges, the types of people that you had in your lab, Peter? So the criteria for that first study were just healthy people that were accustomed to running, and we intentionally had a whole spectrum of people because we wanted as much uh, range as possible on healthy, active people accustomed to running. Uh, in terms of how how fast they could go. So in in that study, you know, we had everything from uh, people that were um, healthy and athletic but just not fast at all, so people that maxed out at about 13 miles per hour, all the way up to um, some of the best regional sprinters uh, in the New England area that that were willing to come in and run on the treadmill for us. And they, they were almost twice as fast as the slowest individuals. We had two of them. Uh, that that ran at 11 meters per second, which is about 23 miles per hour or or faster on the treadmill for us. And senior citizens as well? Oh, uh, no, these are all, uh, (laughs) you know, typically between 18 and 36 or or thereabouts. Mm. You know, it's really interesting when we think about, uh, again, starting your research with animals like uh, antelope. Uh, I understand there's even races that pit horses and, and humans against each other. What are we learning from animals um, as, uh, you know, in sports, like as humans try to get faster and faster? Well, so the, there are some pretty large differences, obviously, between mm-hmm. a runner with two legs and a runner with four. So uh, yeah, surprisingly, when we started uh, the sprint experiments to figure out how the mechanics um, determine uh, what limit speed and how fast different people can run, uh, what determines speed, we really didn't have any idea, you know, why four-legged animals are, are, you know, the fastest animals in the world and no two-legged animals are nearly as fast. But it turns out if you have four legs, it's, it's a big advantage. And all of this really comes down to what happens on the ground. So human runners at top speed spend the majority of the stride in the air. And the better a, a sprinter or an athlete is at executing the delivery of force into the ground, particularly at the early contact phase, the impact phase, when the limb hits, the more the more of the stride time they spend in the air. So if they're more forceful on the ground, 
they spend relatively more time in the air. But a racehorse, for example, at the other end spends most of its time on the ground, even though it's running much faster. Uh, and there's a classic story that goes back to the origins of, of motion pictures, and it's one of the well-known uh, early studies in our field, which was that, that there was a bet in the 1890s between uh, Leland Stanford, who was a, uh, the founder of Stanford University, uh, and the one-time governor of Connecticut, about whether or not all four of a horse's hooves left the ground simultaneously, whether there was an airborne phase, basically, during the gallop of a horse. And the hooves move so fast you can't see that in real time or with the photographic techniques that were available to them at the time. So uh, three years later and after a $25,000 wager, the Edward Moybridge, who was the, the, the leading technical photographer of the day, perfected the technique to get sequential footage to answer that question. And that was actually the beginning of motion pictures. But to bring it back to your question scientifically about how humans are different than four-legged animals, the horse spends most of its time on the ground because it has four legs, even when it's moving at almost 40 miles an hour or so, whereas a human spends most of the time in the air. And that translates directly into how forceful the two runners have to be on the ground, more so with the two-legged runners. And that's an impediment for speed. So having four legs is, is a big advantage because it gives you more time to, to – you don't have such high force requirements on the ground to achieve the high speeds. Uh, we mentioned Usain Bolt. So again, a, a very uh, tall sprinter. When he's running, uh, the amount of force that he's putting on the ground is helping him get back up in the air faster than than other than others that are running. Yes, compared compared to uh, you know athletes that are that are not specialized sprinters or, or average Joes, that that's absolutely true. So uh, for a little bit of frame of reference, Usain Bolt uh, at his his body weight, which is a little over two hundred pounds. He would um, his peak forces on the ground would be a thousand pounds per step, and um, and he'll hit those peak forces within three hundredths of a second or less of his foot first impacting the ground. So typically, the very best sprint athletes that we study will will hit peak forces that are about four and a half to to five times their body weight, and the lesser runners just just can't do that. They can't be that forceful on the ground, and that's why they're not as fast. Uh, so, uh, again, uh, with the research uh, that you've done, and we think about people like Usain Bolt, you know, have we as humans reached our limit when it comes to running? Uh, I'm just curious about how fast humans can really go. That, that's a difficult question to answer scientifically. So we, we deal with uncertainties all the time. So if we, you know, if we have, a, have enough data and it's consistent enough, we can be very confident in a conclusion. But that question... By, by its very nature, pushes us sort of beyond the, the, the tail of the bell curve on one side. So we're projecting out to where we never had any data or don't have any data now. Uh, and science is not very good at, at making those kinds of predictions because the uncertainties become huge. So, you know, with that qualification, um, there's no such thing as a perfect athlete. There's no such thing as a perfect race. So, that, so at least theoretically, it's always going to be possible to, to go a little bit faster. So, and, and certainly, you know, that's, that's the case with uh, Bolt's performances, although, you know, it won't be easily accomplished for someone to, to break his, his world record, certainly, because it is such an outstanding mark. Peter Wayand is my guest on the phone, professor of applied physiology and biomechanics at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. We're going to continue our conversation after the break, and you can join us too. Are you a runner thinking about starting? We're going to have a local resident join us in just a couple of minutes to talk about uh, ways to get off the couch and do that first uh, 5K. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, and this is where we live.
Hi, I'm Lydia Brown here with Carmen Baskoff. We're the producers of Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio, and we want to thank you for taking the time to listen to the Where We Live podcast. Uh, We're taking a moment also to ask you to support the work that we do on this program to ensure that it is here for weeks and months and years to come. It's quick, it's easy, and it's secure. All you have to do is go to the phones 1-800-584-2788 or go online to wnpr.org. I think one of the tricky things about a, a live radio show is uh, where we are only in one time block, and that might not be a time you're able to listen. So that's the, the great part of the podcast. You can take Where We Live with you wherever you're going at whatever time. So if that's something that's important to you, something you rely on to learn about what's happening in your community and in the world, the number to call 1-800-584-2788, or you can go online to wnpr.org slash donate. And thanks. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've been talking about the science behind high-speed running with guest Peter Wayan, professor of applied physiology and biomechanics at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. Now, we know some of you enjoy running for exercise, but what does it really take to pick up the habit? Do you need to have a runner's build or have to have been runner for years to really enjoy or excel at it? You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining me in studio for additional perspective is Jason Marshall. He's president of Glastonbury River Runners in Glastonbury, Connecticut. Jason, welcome to our show. Thank you. Did you run here? Uh, No, (laughs) not today. Didn't run in the rain. Uh, So um, we were talking about uh, the speed of um, uh, high-speed runners and what the science is behind how um, they're able to run uh, much faster than most of us. I'm curious what what led you to start running, Jason. Um, I got into it... uh, Gosh, I mean, I ran in high school and did that kind of thing, um, but was never an athlete. It was one of those things where I ran track in high school to have something to put on my college applications and um, was about to become a father. And it was an opportunity to just kind of figuring, all right, I'm going to be chasing around a little one. I may as well put some structure into it and some accountability and just get up and start moving. And I found through the magic of the internet, the Glastonbury River Runners. And they had a couch to 5K kind of get you up and moving program and started that way, made some friends, realized that um, it was okay to kind of reward yourself with a cup of coffee afterwards. And that was the kind of thing that people were talking about as we got out and started moving. And it was just sort of a great way to give me the structure to have it in my head of like, okay, I can really do this. And that first day seeing people of different, you know, all shapes and sizes were there. And I can remember one of those people who did not look like a runner at all, but was already sweaty before we had even started this first day of the beginner program and going, oh yeah, well, why, why are you sweaty already? And she said, well, I just ran five miles to get here. And the light bulb clicked of like, oh my gosh, well, if you can do this, surely I can do it too. And then I just kind of caught the bug. And, um, you know, I finished my first marathon last October. Congratulations. Thank you very much. <laughs> I still feel like I'm still out there some days. But, uh, yeah, it, it's it's just one of those things where, you know, just that, that positive feeling of, like, I'm up, I'm moving, I'm completing a race. It feels really good. Sometimes it takes a little longer than I would like, but, uh, you know, at the end of the day, to be able to just know that I'm doing something that I 
wasn't able to do before mm. is uh, is pretty motivating. So you mentioned when you showed up, there were people different ages, different body types. It's pretty mm-hmm. diverse. So that was surprising to you. Did you have in your mind what the ideal runner is? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, we're programmed. I mean, Usain Bolt is an athlete and looks like an athlete. I mean, I'm not that person and I will never be that person, but that's okay. And I think that's the thing that, you know, with our run club itself and the people that I run with is we're all regular, you know, there's no magic elixir to, you know, becoming a runner. Anyone can do it, um, you know, physical limitations aside, but, you know, there is that aspect of getting up and moving feels good and we all, you know, have that ability. And now you're wearing a King of Pain shirt. What's I, that about? <laughs> I am. So the King of Pain is is definitely a little bit more for the masochist side of running. But uh, uh, the River Runners, we do three runs every year uh, as part of our, you know, membership and programming. Um, and the King of Pain is a 10-mile race early February every year uh, through the hills of South Glastonbury. Um, and you can see by the crown on the logo of the shirt that is actually the elevation profile for the race. Uh, it was, it's kind of our, pun intended, crown jewel event for the year. But uh, it's a 10-mile race in early February. Everybody who gets up and moving, there's definitely some preparation in the cold and winter time. This year we were lucky in that it was, you know, high 30s and sunshine and dry. So, um, but I can tell a lot of brave souls that were out there with me years past, you know, braving in the elements, bundled up and getting up and moving. And I tell you that that hot chocolate that you have after <laughs> that race is over is really, really yeah. delightful. I know some people who appreciate the beer after the race. <laughs> That's another thing. I, you know, I am an, uh, definitely an avid beer drinker um, and, uh, you know, like to reward myself in moderation, of course. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, there is definitely something to be said about giving yourself a little indulgence after getting up and moving. I, as I mentioned, Peter Wayand is with us by phone, a professor of applied physiology and biomechanics at Southern Methodist University in Texas. Uh, Peter, uh, when people think about starting to run, often it's, well, you have to get the right shoes uh, to be able uh, to be comfortable when you're running. I understand you and your colleagues recently published a study that relates to this very question. Can you tell us more? Yeah. So, so Andrew Udofa, uh, who uh, was with us as an undergraduate student and just finished his doctoral degree last year and actually has just taken a job at, at uh, Brooks uh, Sports uh, to, to design running shoes in Seattle with them. Um, Andrew was very interested in, in the effects of, of shoes on the mechanics of running, so um, we kind of followed his interests with it and we did a comparison. Um, we had a working understanding of how the mechanics of gait relate to the forces on the ground, and those ground forces are what determines a runner's motion. So for Andrew's work, what we did was we compared four different footwear conditions. One was uh, of different thicknesses. One was a barefoot condition, so subjects ran on our force-instrumented treadmill at, at a few speeds in, in their bare feet, and then they ran in a minimalist shoe, which is uh, was, a, in this case, a Vibram Five Fingers, which people in your audience can, could probably can. Uh, see in their head with the, the funny-looking shoes with the toe with the toe pockets for each toe, and then a, a cross-country racer, uh, which is called a waffle racer from Nike, and then a thick shoe from 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 Asics. So we compared the mechanics of running in those four different conditions. And our primary purpose was to 
figure out if the, if our understanding of how runner's motion affects on the, the force on the ground was correct. And we knew that by changing that thickness interface between the foot and the ground that we would have measurable differences and we wanted to see if we could explain them. But one of the outcomes of that study was that runners modify their gait in, in accordance with what's on their foot in order to absorb the impact portion of, of the stride. So in essence, in the in the barefoot condition, in the, the vibram, which is a very, very thin sole, uh, runners adapt by landing uh, on their forefoot with steeper and steeper angles to sort of cushion the blow using their, their foot and their calf, whereas if they're in a, bi- a big thick shoe, they'll, they have no reservation about clunking down on their heel because the shoe ab- absorbs those impact forces. So if I'm looking for a more comfortable shoe, uh, I may get that, but I'm not, it may not help me become more speedy. Well, there's a, there's a lot of trade-offs involved, and, and there's, you know, for the last 10 years, these debates have raged. So what's best, really, I think the best guide for it is, is simply comfort. Some people are more comfortable. You know, there's a whole barefoot running movement, minimalist uh, running shoe movement, where, you know, a lot of the people are, that have converted are, are pretty hardcore, thinking that that's better for them. And so I, I think it's really an individual thing. It depends on, on a lot of factors, sort of anatomy uh, and, and mechanical preferences. So there's not really a, a right and wrong per se. Uh, Jason Marshall, president of Glastonbury River Runners, uh, did you think about the, the proper shoes before you begin? I mean, I, I definitely uh, am a bit of a diva with my shoes. Uh, so I do like the look of things sometimes, and I fall into those <laughs> traps. Um, I am more on uh, team cushion because of just running longer distances and things like that. And and I think Peter could speak to this as well of like when you're running longer distances, you're focused more on, you know, comfort of your running versus like a sprinter is going to run in a much thinner, you know, more barefoot preparation and everything else. And, you know, so to that end, I mean – for me personally, I'm a believer in whatever is going to kind of get you that extra motivation to getting up and moving and you want to do something that there is a scientific aspect of it. But if it's something that's going to make you comfortable, if wearing a pair of neon green shoes is the kind of thing that's going to give you a little added juice to get you out there, go for it. So there's some level of compromise to it. This is where we live uh, today as we focus on running. Uh, My guest in studio, Jason Marshall, president of Glastonbury River Runners in Glastonbury, Connecticut. And on the phone, Dr. Peter Wayan, professor of applied physiology and biomechanics at Southern Methodist University in Dallas. Uh, Peter, earlier we were talking about uh, punching, how elite athletes are hitting the ground with a lot more force uh, as they run. How does that impact their body over time? As I mentioned, those forces in the in the athletes are, are pretty large. They're five times body weight, and if you if you look at the, what happens to the the muscles and the tendons uh, when those big forces are are put into the ground, they're they're typically about two times higher. So if the force on the ground for Usain Bolt is five times his body weight uh, when it peaks out, that means the force on his Achilles tendon is ten times his body weight. So there's a lot of stress and. Jumping athletes, long jumpers and triple jumpers, their forces for their jump steps are, are appreciably higher than that. So typically, because those forces are so high, those athletes have very limited volumes. So they just they don't do a great deal of work. Obviously, they don't, and they don't need to. Like a marathon runner, you know, they might run 10 to 20 miles uh, on average a day. But the sprinters and the jumpers do very little because they'll break down if they do a lot, and they don't need to do a lot. So. 
uh, when we think about uh, redu- for the rest of us, the the average uh, people out there, not the uh, Usain Bolts of the world, uh, ways that we can reduce uh, our likelihood of injury if we take up the sport, Peter. So, you know, again, and I think Jason covered this pretty well, it's, you know, let comfort be your guide. If, if, you, um, if you break down how many steps and sort of impact loads you have in terms of mechanics, um, it's almost a, a thousand or typically about a thousand per mile. So even, even in the, the jogging crowd, uh, <clears throat> the peak forces on the ground are going to be two and a half times body weight or a little bit larger. So if you think about doing that, you know, 500 times every mile on each leg, um, over time those impact forces are enormous. And, of course, this is part of the reason that, that uh, it's not uncommon for runners to have uh, leg injuries, particularly lower limb injuries. So, but again, you know, the best guide is, is how, how a shoe feels to you. There's not necessarily any right or wrong answer. Some people have had good success uh, switching from, from a, a thick shoe to barefoot or minimal shoe in terms of staying injury-free, and other people get hurt by doing it. So it's really what feels feels comfortable for you. That's really the best guidance I can give. Uh, Jason Marshall, we just have a couple of minutes left. Uh, first, the advice for people who, again, want to try that couch to 5K. Uh, I'm just curious uh, what they can do in, in the next few days and weeks. Well, the, the big thing for me with that is, yes, you can. Get up and move. You know, um, it's, it's totally ironic. Tomorrow is actually the start of a... Uh, our Get Ready to Run program Perfect. here in Glastonbury. Um, so we start tomorrow, and uh, the whole objective of it is it's a nine-week program. We meet twice a week, um, and we start tomorrow with a one-minute run, one-minute walk, alternating for a mile. Gets you up and moving, starts building that sort of endurance and motivation, and the objective of it is after the nine weeks, we have a 5K that we do within the club, and the goal is you finish that by keeping moving without stopping, and... Um, we build you up nice and easy. Um, it doesn't happen overnight. There's definitely challenges to it, but the whole objective of starting with a very easy run walk, second week you do two minutes, one minute walk, and just kind of keep slowly building and motivating and having a couple of good people to do it with that sense of community of just like seeing others to be able to know, you know, I'm not alone in this. I can do this. Look at all these other people that are doing it. You start making friends and having conversations with them. And it just kind of gives that ease and comfort of like, wait, I'm doing something athletic, but it's not as hard as I think it is. I think the mental part of it that comes into play um, becomes that much easier when you have a friend to do it with. Jason Marshall again is president of Glastonbury River Runners in Glastonbury, Connecticut. We'll link uh, information on our website, wmpr.org, slash where we live for our listeners who want to participate. Thanks so much, Jason. Much appreciated. Pleasure. Thank you so much. And also thanks to Dr. Peter Wayne, professor of applied physiology and biomechanics at Southern Methodist University. Uh, Thanks, Peter. Certainly. My pleasure, Lucy. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we introduce you to Enfield resident Kieran Majmudar. He's a marathoner who started running when he was 65. You don't want to miss our conversation. First, if you appreciate the wide variety of conversations we have here on Where We Live, you can support this program on the last day of WMPR's spring membership drive. Here's the number to call. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Is this the year you're thinking about running in a marathon? The Hartford Marathon is just a few months away, so now's the time to lace up your sneaks and start training. It's natural to doubt whether you have it in you to run 26.2 miles, but let me introduce you to Enfield resident Kieran Mujmudar. He's run the Hartford Marathon seven times. 
But that's not the most surprising part of his story. Kieran, welcome to Where We Live. Thank you. So I was uh, interested to hear that you have been running now for several years. And uh, a lot of people look at your age and think, wow, to be able to complete a full marathon, that's quite a feat. It is a challenge. It's difficult. But you do it. So you're 72 years now. When did you start running, Kieran? I started long distance running about uh, nine years ago. And I did first two, there were half marathons. And after that, I got hooked on the full marathon. I've been doing it every year. So some of us start, you know, small with our 5K. What made you do 13 miles your first time? Somehow, uh, my daughter ran a full marathon way back when. And I used to run, but not long distance. And um, I wanted to know, I had some conversation with her about where I wanted to know where my limit was. And so I said, I'll try half, and that's what happened. My oldest son, I think, also ran the first half, and that's where it all started in the long-distance running. How did you know, uh, in terms of training, did you run a few miles every day? Like, How did you train for that first half marathon, Kieran? I frankly didn't. <laughs> I started the training when I started uh, the full marathon. And when I joined the group, that was Hartford Foundation Marathon Training Group. Mm-hmm. So how, how did that first half marathon go by not training? Uh, how did you get through it? How did you feel when you got to the finish line? Uh, the finish line was good. The in-between was interesting because uh, the, the course went through West Hartford and then through Elizabeth Park and where, again, the family was there, so that made it interesting. And the one thing I do remember is right in front of Arthur Drugstore on Farmington Avenue, I almost stumbled. I remember that forever. Oh, that's good that you didn't fall. <laughs> I didn't. But the finish was good. Thank God it was over. Mm. And uh, so you said, thank God it was over. But what kept you going, Kieran? I somehow enjoyed it. And as I said, I kept on looking for where is that limit, and I'm still looking. I understand for your first full marathon, your son ran that with you? My oldest son was with me. He was the one that said, Dad, if you want to run a full, I'll go with you. So we both did. Of course, he was way ahead of me, and he had to wait at the finish line. But again, uh, it was wonderful because he also ran. The family was there. They were all waiting at the finish line. That made a big difference. It's good to have a cheering squad on the on the sidelines and at the finish line. We now have a routine over the last many years where my wife drops me off early in the day before the roads close, and then I would wait at the start line. She would be waiting at uh, several locations along the course over so many hours. So we have that routine well established by now, and uh, I see children, grandchildren, as well as they meet me and join me in the last most difficult six miles from uh, about South Windsor on up to Hartford. Uh, For people who don't run, why is that last six miles difficult, Karen? Ah, the last six miles are the most terrible part of the race. It's a second race. You've already done first 20, and the last six, you don't have a whole lot left in your body. So it's basically a lot of mind at that point. Uh, you're cramping, you're tired, you're sweating. Uh, 
Nothing is good at that point. <laughs> uh, people might be wondering, well, why keep running? Why keep running the marathon each year, even if it's grueling near the end? Well, there is something in the mind that says, hey, you cannot stop. There's something in the mind that says, if I could do it once more, I'll be happy. And that's what happens just about every year. So you enjoy pushing yourself to the next one. I like punishing myself. <laughs> punishing yourself. <laughs> Uh, I mentioned earlier, too, that you have now run the Hartford Marathon seven times. Tell us about how you prepare now that you're a more seasoned runner, so to speak. The preparation is the uh, more difficult part in the sense that your training for an October marathon starting in June, so about 14 weeks prior to. And that takes you through a very hot and humid time of the year. So... Some runs, long runs, are very difficult. But the good part is we have a bunch of people, a group, that we meet in Glastonbury all Saturday mornings, and we run together. So as a result, you're not doing it alone. You have a whole bunch of people of all different capabilities. Some are stronger, some are not so strong. I'm one of the ones in the back of the group. (laughs) So that's the training, but the training is what makes you ready for the final run on the last day. If someone's been thinking about running the Hartford Marathon, they want to, be, they want to get part of a training group by May, June to begin? Uh, yes, of course. Uh, the group is no longer an organized, supported, sponsored type group. So it's a lot more informal, but we've been running together all these years. So one suggestion I have would be to go to the Hartford Marathon Foundation website where they do have a section on training. It may be for half marathon, it may be for 5K. So start there to get going. And there are all kinds of websites that tell you how to and what to from couch to 5K. All of them are good. Uh, We've all heard the term, you know, age is just a number. Uh, When people know of your age, Kieran, and that you've been running now the marathon for seven years, what's their first reaction? Uh, (laughs) First reaction is you're crazy. (laughs) I agree. Uh, But, yeah, usually they tell me what they would like to do. And I tell them, yes, it's a great idea. I encourage everybody and anybody who's interested. And, uh, yeah, as long as you have the motivation to get to the start line, you're good to go. I understand you also have a strategy, so to speak, in how you are getting through the 26.2 miles. So you do a combination of running and walking? I do. last few years I've been doing three to five minutes of running and 30-second walking. And that seems to be working in the last few years because every year the body is one year older. So what worked last year doesn't work this year. So you've got to find a new way to train yourself to do the 26. So that's a strategy I've been following. And some some in my training group do like the same. So that helps out a lot. But that's the key in my case that You run, and then you walk. Run, you walk. Right from the start. 
Um, how have your times changed from the time that you began running the marathon and now, uh, Kieran? Terrible. It keeps increasing every year, and I'm trying to reduce it, and it doesn't work. My time was five and a half hours last year, and it has been creeping up every year. I don't like it, but that's the way it is. But the important thing is, is you're crossing that finish line. That's the important part, yes. So tell us your secret, Karen, because I'd like to think when I'm 72, it'd be great to be running in a, in a marathon, but not everyone can do it. Some people might be thinking, you know, my knees won't be able to take it by the time I'm that age. What was your, uh, your youth like? What kind of activities were you involved in as a young man? My well, young age, I played all kinds of sports. I played a lot more cricket in India, which is very important there. I like playing a lot of tennis. That's important. I didn't do a whole lot of running, but I used to run on the uh, track when we lived on uh, Farmington Avenue back in the early 70s. And uh, I enjoyed that. And then somehow I kept on running, but I never did the long distance until much later. And the whole key is basically keep active, keep mowing, even if it's just walking. Uh, you're an Enfield resident, so uh, when uh, when are you uh, out um, on uh, the local roads uh, training, or do you go to a gym, and do you run on a treadmill? No, I have not done gym or treadmill in confined environment for many years. I like going outside, outdoors, and I have a route or two in town that are a lot less uh, vehicle traffic, and a little more pedestrian-friendly. So those are the routes that I usually take so that I don't have to think too hard about trucks coming by (laughs) or cars going by, and that's what I do. But you got to do it every more or less day. Uh, 2019 uh, marathon's coming up. Will you be there, Kieran? I'm hoping to be there, line up at the start line, The uh, always the Greater concern is you don't want to get injured while you're training because injury is a big part of the sport. And uh, that's what I try to do. Don't fall. Don't get hurt. Go slow. And what's your advice to uh, older adults who might be listening uh, about uh, maybe taking on this uh, type of challenge? Keep walking. Keep mowing. And every week, increase it 10%. (laughs) Kiran Mudjmodar, thank you so much for coming in today. We really appreciate it. I thank you very much and uh, hope everybody out there gets excited to do a little more activity than normal. Today's show produced by Lydia Brown. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. One of the best parts of hosting where we live is talking to interesting people from all over Connecticut. We tackle a variety of topics and we give you the chance to join our conversation daily. Please support where we live and WMPR on our last day of our spring membership campaign. Here's the number to call.